0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. It is my hallowed and humble honor to be in dialogue today with Crispin Brooks on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm in dialogue with Crispin Brooks. He is the curator of the University of Southern California's Shoah Foundation's Visual History Archive. Today, we are discussing his newly edited book, which he has co edited with Kirill Pfefferman Beyond the Pale, The Holocaust in the North Caucasus, published in Rochester by University of Rochester Press, 2020. Crispin, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you very much for having me, Ari. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life? inspired your interest in this topic?
1: So um, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm from the UK, from from England, Uh, although I grew up in Scotland the first 14 years of my life. um, My dad was a um, chair of the history department at Birmingham University for some years, Um, so I grew up in from a teenager in Birmingham, in the, in the Midlands, in England. Um, then went to university at Manchester, and then um, did my MPhil in, in um, Russian literature at the, the University of London's uh, School of Slavonic and East European Studies. Um, that was in the 1990s. Um, and you know at the end of my undergraduate degree in Manchester, And kind of on and off through my time at um, CIS, the School of Eastern European, Slavonic and East European Studies in London, um, I was living in in Moscow um, and spending time in archives there. Um, My MPhil dissertation was actually not um, on Holocaust uh, or even really history at all, but it was on... um, Russian futurist literature, future experimental poetry produced around about the time of World War One. So I was in different archives to to where it would go subsequently. Um, But, you know, studying a poet who came from the south of Russia, who was a uh, Cossack, um, and who integrated all sorts of interesting sort of experiments into his work. in you know i met my wife when i was in moscow um in the mid 1990s um and you know came over to the u.s uh to be with her because she was in grad school um uh ultimately at ucla in grad school so i came to los angeles um and then ended up uh getting a job at the Shoah Foundation who needed Russian speakers to work on Russian language uh, testimony. So this is the the Shoah Foundation, originally known as the Survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation, um, a project set up by Steven Spielberg after he filmed Schindler's List to record um, interviews, especially with Holocaust survivors and other witnesses um, of the Holocaust. Um, So I started working there, particularly on Russian language uh, survivor testimonies. Um, And then, you know, over the time, kind of morphed my kind of academic interests into Holocaust history, particularly initially focusing on the Shoah Foundation's archive, um, but then more thinking about issues more broadly in terms of the broader history. Um, Oh, in the 1990s, when I was living in Russia. Actually, no, before I was living in Russia, when I was a student at Manchester, had a few months as part of my undergraduate degree, right after the collapse of the former Soviet Union. So in spring um, to summer of 1992, I went to Russia for the first time as a pretty kind of naive uh, British, you know, lanky, long-haired, weirdo British student, kind of, <laughs> um, and it ended up... Um, because we all got uh, Russian student passes. So we were able to buy Russian student tickets and get uh, accommodation at Russian student prices at that time. So we could afford to do a little bit of traveling in Russia that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to. And one of the trips I did with some other uh, British students was down to the Caucasus. Uh, We went down, this must have been summer 92, We went down to Sochi, then got a train across to – we'd also been to Crimea before that. We'd been to Yalta in Crimea, um, because we knew of Yalta from reading Chekhov, so we went there. (laughs) And then um, went to the Caucasus, went to Sochi, then got the train over to Mineral Niavodi, in sort of the spa towns region of the North Caucasus spent a little bit of time in Kategorsk, really, really interesting. And again, you know, then I was a sort of a, a literature student. I wasn't sort of so much thinking of things historical. And there's a big the uh, great Russian writer, um, has a statue in Kategorsk. Um, but we were very aware of, you know, being there in the summer of 92, there was a lot of how you said commotion, toing and froing, um, that even us, kind of pretty ignorant, naive British students on our first trip to Russia, could kind of realize there was a lot of unrest in the North Caucasus. There was a lot of kind of um, people sort of representing their kind of ethnic or national groups in terms of clothing, in terms of how they presented themselves there was a lot of weaponry on the streets. It was very unclear when we were there um, in some of the places where we were like, you know, is this the police? Is this some kind of militia? Who are these people with just sort of handguns and uh, semi-automatic rifles going around? It was just kind of a little, you know, it was different to us. It was it left, it left an impression. And of course, you know, the the North Caucasus was evolving from the end of you know, uh, the Soviet Union and going into a period where it become part of the Russian Federation, but that that there was a push and pull um, in terms of, you know, independence movements. Um, The Caucasus had been conquered by Russia in the the 1800s, and yet they'd remained, you know, uh, this sort of sense of, um, you know, potential for independence, um, whether... As individual kind of states, or as a kind of collective North Caucasus state, there've been various sort of ideas and thoughts about that. Um, and there was that kind of, you know, even you know, like I said, us, us kind of pretty naive students could kind of feel there was something going on, or okay, ooh, felt quite scary and dangerous, exciting. Um, to us then. But yeah, that would go on to be, you know, later on, f- further east in Chechnya, there would be the first Chechen war breakout a couple of years later. Uh, and then the security situation in, in the North Caucasus on and off from the 1990s up to the present day has, you know, fluctuated and got more or less dangerous. There's been more or less periods of, you know, greater control by the Russian security forces and lesser control and you know it's been it's been unstable in that period but so that was quite a a formative trip and then the other thing that in terms of this book was um i was i got to go to a conference in 2007 in paris um it was really about the holocaust in ukraine um but it kind of gathered together all the leading scholars there um, so i met a lot of people there and the per- you the person in relation to this book who i met was kirill Pfefferman, who was working on um, crimea at that time and the holocaust in crimea and just getting to know kirill was you know great so really good guy i think you've had him on your podcast
0: right absolutely i've had him on twice and he's an amazing human being he's yes. a remarkable scholar and just a golden human being
1: yeah absolutely you know lovely lovely guy and so we got along and then and then a couple a year or so later I was kind of you know just at work at the Shoah Foundation and actually the Shoah Foundation was building this kind of experimental tool to put all of the in terms of all the testimonies that we'd we'd gathered um, we'd gone through this process of indexing all the testimonies. And what that meant was kind of, in part anyway, saying all the places that people talk about and where people talk about it in these interviews. And so the Shaw Foundation was building this experimental tool to put all those places on the map. And I saw an early version of this tool that a developer produced. And I was zooming around on this map going, okay, there's testimonies where you'd expect them. Lots of testimonies from Poland or from Germany central and eastern Europe, and I was zooming around in, sort of moving the map over to Russia, and I saw all these kind of things popping up in terms of uh, the Caucasus, and I was, oh, that's interesting. I was vaguely aware that the Germans had got down to the Caucasus, hadn't really focused on it, and then in spe- as I zoomed in, you know, for me what was interesting was particularly this, the chapter of the book that I ended up writing about, this Karachai region, of the, the North Caucasus, we had a, a group of testimonies, not a massive number, you know, five, six, seven testimonies. And I was like, "Huh," because the one thing I knew about the Karachai region was that the Soviets had deported the Karachais during World War II uh, for allegedly collaborating with the Nazis. So I was like, huh, so if there was this collab- apparent collaboration that happened there and that happened there and, and we have testimonies there then there's something that piqued my interest um, as you know someone looking at the holocaust so then i started looking to those testimonies and then that became my kind of way of kind of thinking about the Caucasus. and then i was like hey you know kirill i was aware that he'd done some work on the mountain jews and the north Caucasus. so i was like i contacted him and say hey do you think we could maybe get a few scholars together and do a special issue of a journal well, maybe if we get enough, we could get you know we could we might have enough for a book, and so that's how that evolved in something like somewhere back in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine we were having those initial discussions, um, and then we sort of took it from there. I don't know if that the... answered your question. <laughs> was I have forgotten? I kind of went off a little bit. But you you your you, hit, you
0: you you hit it out of the park. You owned it. That was terrific. Oh, okay. Okay what are the primary themes in this book what message does this book convey
1: um well i guess the the first thing about the book so it's the first book in english that focuses just on the holocaust in the north caucasus that has that kind of geographic focus in terms of the holocaust and so with that the the thing that you that we've come across is, is in a sense the foreignness of it, of the topic. And I mean that in two ways. In terms of um, the history of the Caucasus or of Russia or of the Soviet Union um, in that area, the Holocaust as a concept doesn't even really, it is, is not there, it's a kind of a blank spot. And there's various reasons for that. It's a legacy of um, of the Soviets kind of downplaying the sort of the Jewish victimhood of the Holocaust, um, and kind of upplaying the, the Soviet citizens that were killed as a way of as a sort of a, a way of unifying the Soviet Union in the post-war era, but it definitely downplaying Jewish victimhood. So the Holocaust is a topic that would obviously inherently you know emphasize or, or draw. Attention to Jewish victimhood was it was not a thing, but then in terms of you know the local scholarship, the the scholarship produced by North Caucasians themselves in universities in those areas in it, which is which are all part of Russia, it's not really part of their histor their kind of thinking and their outlook either, because it, the Germans came in and invaded very quickly and then left and there weren't really very many local jews so the victims that were there were also not from there and were not there for very long so it is sort of is a is a sort of a strange foreign imposition onto their kind of territory for a brief time of both foreign perpetrators and victims primarily and so it doesn't really register in the flow of, of history from a from a North Caucasian's perspective, okay. especially when they're thinking about all the various incidences of violence that have happened to them, uh, you know, particularly the the Russian conquest of the the North Caucasus in the eighteen hundreds. Um, later on, the kind of the the civil war um, from you know nineteen seventeen to twenty one twenty. The imposition of Soviet uh, kind of power through, you know, collectivization and various other measures, um, and then especially in in the 20th century, the at, at the end of World War II, the deportation of entire ethnic groups from the North Caucasus and some of the surrounding areas uh, to Central Asia, but you know, under Stalin. So all these groups that get accused of collaboration with the Nazis and the entirety of the ethnic group gets deported. And so that happened to the Chechens, the Ingush, the Karachais that I talk about, uh, the Balkars um, and others in the, in the vicinity as well in 1943, 44, um, even some places in 45. So that's a big thing. And for those groups, those mass deportations have, have been sort of, publicly acknowledged um as genocides in the last 30 years since the fall of the soviet union so the attention of the local historians and you know the local audience is much more on those events that reflect you know their life and their sort of existence in the north caucasus rather than this this really strange you know five month long Genocide, where both the perpetrators and the victims weren't from there primarily. So that's the one thing that's sort of strange foreignness. And then, and then from the from perspective of Holocaust history, it's also, you know, it's this is a fairly new area. People haven't worked on this, um, so it's a very different kind of form of the Holocaust to what people might be familiar with. So the, the sort of the stereotype and the stereotype, typical understanding of the Holocaust is perhaps what happened in Poland. So ghettos and camps um, and, you know, with with death camps at the end, the, kind of that kind of version of the final solution. And then I think there's been gradual awareness of what's called the Holocaust by bullets in the last sort of two decades. So which is the Holocaust in the former Soviet Union when the Germans went in in summer 1941, they weren't deporting people to Auschwitz or to Treblinka or wherever at that point. They were going. The Germans were going to the local communities. This was the stage of the Holocaust before that. The Germans were going in. the The military would go through, and then behind that, the SS would go and kill in mass shootings groups of Jews in every community where they would find them. So what the Holocaust in the North Caucasus represents is the end of that process. The last sort of few months where the Germans were doing that in their most easterly push into the Soviet Union, but where they've also begun to experiment with gas in the form of gas fans, which is, I guess, something we'll talk about. Um, and so it's this kind of hybrid stage of the Holocaust um, that's not well known. And then there's the fact, like I said, it's the primary victims were refugees. So you have Jews who fled the initial German advance into the Soviet Union in summer 41. And there was this mass evacuation of of, um, people and resources that the Soviets deemed necessary to save East. But there was a lot of, you know, most of the people that knew to flee or to evacuate were Jews because they knew they were likely to be targets of the Nazis. And they were evacuated to supposed safety. Now, some went further east to Kazakhstan or to other places into deeper into the Soviet Union, but there was a lot of evacuation to the Caucasus, which was then hundreds of miles away from the German advance. But what happened basically a year later in summer 1942 is that the Germans have a second wave of attack into into Russia at this point, into the Soviet Union, but into the Russian part, and very quickly advance um, from Ukraine through the south of Russia and get all the way down almost as far as the Caspian Sea, um, and and conquering, you know, invading and occupying most of the North Caucasus um, in about a month from the very end of July through August into early to mid-September, 1942. So it was this really, really fast advance that suddenly sweeps all that area where people thought they were safe. So there's the, people didn't, often didn't have that much of a chance to uh, evacuate further or to flee further. Um, so it captured all these Jews, especially Jewish refugees who, were, who believed or were told that they would be safe. Um, and all of a sudden they weren't. So there's that. Uh, There's another dynamic about the small numbers of local Jews. Um, There's a group that people may or may not be aware of uh, called the Mountain Jews, which is a sort of a community of Jews descended from uh, Persian Jews who'd uh, migrated north in the last sort of thousand or so years Uh, into the North Caucasus, and had taken on many sort of both North Caucasian traits, as well as retaining Jewish religious practice and traditions. Um, And that community that is in Dagestan and Azerbaijan, and historically was always in Chechnya, uh, there there are fairly major communities, or one or two major communities in the North Caucasus, particularly in a city, a small city called Nalchik, um, the capital of one of the the republics of the North Caucasus um, within Russia today in former Soviet Union, called uh, the Republic of Kabardino Balkaria, so a republic named after two of the main ethnic groups, the Kabardians and the Balkars, but there's a big mountain Jewish community there, or relatively big, um, and was at any rate, um, and so what happened to them was very very unusual in that they largely escaped execution so there's a story there um gosh i'm saying a lot there's more things to the book too it was the other thing which is more of a kind of historical uh perspective is about um the question of sources how you know things um and the kind of sources you use when you uh, focus on a topic and here you know What I what I hope to do was kind of integrate both the deeper contexts of um, the North Caucasus of Russian and Soviet contexts into the uh, kind of Holocaust context. So typically, you know, what what tends to happen is that Holocaust historians have their kind of sources that they use to work on the Holocaust, and then, you know, Soviet historians will have their kind of sources, and maybe, you know, North Caucasian local historians will have their kind of sources, and they don't necessarily interact with each other. And sort of, so part of the goal of this book was to have, you know, sort of try to bring these worlds together a little bit, and have a much kind of deeper and richer sense of the context, that it wasn't just, you know, this kind of when I thought about that foreignness earlier and that kind of, it it wasn't this kind of external thing that came in and happened that it was, yeah, it was an external thing that came in and happened, but it happened with local context in a place with local, you know, cultural, political, historical, linguistic contexts that need to be understood if you are to understand the broader thing. So the, the book, there was some, there was something there that we were trying to, you know, go in in greater depth.
0: Um, yeah. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today?
1: Mm, well, hopefully... I mean, I think there's one thing that's that, that may be apparent, but we know a lot about the Holocaust, but we still don't know a lot about the Holocaust. So, you know, work, working on this area, while we did some, you know, really in-depth sort of micro-studies in this book... There's so much more to know. There's so much more that you'll, you'll have seen that that was kind of not really firmly established um, from, from the basic topic alone of, you know, we, we don't know definitively or all that closely how many Jews were killed in the Holocaust in the North Caucasus. There's quite a wide range um depending again on the particular sources that you choose to look at in favor one over the other so we're still kind of finding out the basics the absolute basics of you know what happened um and I think the book pushed that sort of further we we got further with that than than it'd been known before in in various ways but there's still a lot more to learn um and then again, just to, to sort of re-emphasize that sort of, I feel it's important to sort of integrate the different contexts and not to not view, you know, Holocaust history and Soviet history or Holocaust history and North Caucasian history as entirely separate things that that don't speak to each other, but but try and kind of create some integration of that. That was that's
0: I think really important. Can you tell us about the Jewish? community of Nalchik that you alluded to earlier on. Mm. What, what befell this community during the years 1939
1: to 1945? Yeah, so there's, um, there's effectively, the community really that we're talking about is the community of mountain Jews who live in Nalchik. Um, There there were several thousand of them um, going into World War II. Um, Now, what's interesting about the whole of the North Caucasus is that in the Russian Empire, basically the entire region was was beyond the pale, which is in the title of the book. So Jews were not supposed to be living in the North Caucasus. Um, and the one exception was that there was a Jewish community in uh, Rostov, which is sort of a major Russian city. Um, I guess in the very west of the what could be considered the North Caucasus. But other than that, there were you know virtually no Jews living in the North Caucasus, except for the mountain Jews. And now, they had come to live in the North Caucasus um, by my understanding after being displaced from places in Dagestan and Chechnya during the Caucasus War. So when the Russians conquered the Caucasus um, and the, you know, there was basically declared a, a holy war by the, um, the largely Muslim um, various ethnic groups uh, united around a kind of a banner of Islam to, to fight against the, the, the Russians. Um, and this was, you know, in, in the mid-1800s, ending in 1864, um, arguably beginning in the 1780s when Russia first came into the, the Russian Empire first came into the area, but really usually thought of a little later from the 1820s to the 1864 or so. Uh, anyway, so uh, communities, have been, communities of Jews had been displaced at that time to a certain extent. And, were, and the Nalchik community was housed in this newly formed city of Nalchik, which, you know, dates from the, the late 1700s from the Russian sort of colonization of the area. Um, and so they were somewhat, I guess, you know, somewhat, you know, safeguarded by the newly arrived Russian Empire in that place. So there's a community there that had been there for a while. Um, and... So just to say, the other the other weird thing about the Holocaust in the North Caucasus, the, the entire German occupation of the region lasted just a little bit over five months. So it's not this is not Poland where you know the Germans come in in '39 and get finally kicked out in you know even in '45. This is a, a very short occupation. And then there's some differentiation around, you know, different areas, how long the occupation lasted, but most of it was five months beginning basically in August 42 in the summer, and then ending in very early January 1943, after the Battle of Stalingrad, when there's suddenly this mass retreat of the Germans, they leave the Caucasus to avoid further encirclement and defeat. So it was five months, very short Within that, the city of Nalchik that we're talking about was only occupied for about two and a half months. It was further, you know, into the Caucasus Mountains, just the way the front moved. It it only got to the Germans in October um, 1942. And then um, you know, it's halfway through October 40. I don't have the date off the top of my head, but somewhere in you know mid-October 42, the Germans arrived. And you know, left in the first days of January '43, so like two and a half month occupation. So, the Germans got there. They found um, not only Mountain Jews there, but a small local community of Ashkenazi Jews, European Jews, as well as uh, refugees. They you know killed. They executed all the european jews the ashkenazi jews and the refugees because it was clear to the germans they were just doing what what they'd done in every other place where they arrived and found jews that was clear but then they had question marks about the mountain jews they were like who are these people Um, and they didn't have clear understanding there may have been um, different understandings between the german army and the ss um and the ss uh, got a uh, sort direction from an organization called the Vance Institute. It's nothing, it's not at all connected to the um, Vance Conference, um, the, where the meeting that decided on the f- final solution. It's just that's Vance was where it was located, this institute. It was an interwar institute um, for the study of the Soviet Union set up in Berlin, Germany. And uh, as the war got closer, it basically got taken over by um, the SD, the, the security services. And it produced information for them, you know, particularly, you know, on the ethnic makeup of the Soviet Union and other other things. And at certain times, you know, where the Jews were. And they had, they studied, um, you know, were the mountain Jews Jews or not? And they kind of ruled that they were. Um, but there was some, there's, a, there's, it's difficult to determine how it all happened and who exactly was responsible. But basically between the German military, some local collaborators um, and the intervention of the mountain Jews themselves, uh, they managed to convince the Germans on the ground, the SS and the military, on the ground in Nalchik that in fact um, the mountain Jews were not Jews. They, while, whilst they seem to have adopted the Jewish religion, somehow they were in fact not ethnically Jewish, not by blood, which was obviously of central importance to the Germans so they kind of decided that this particular community of mountain Jews okay we're we're not going to kill them um and you know according to survivor testimonies that I've listened to or or even recorded myself um the, the the decision ultimately did come through to kill them but because the occupation was so short the Germans didn't have the chance to revise their decision and, and kill them after all and then they, they retreated before they did that. So one way or another the community of mountain Jews in Nalchik was spared the fate of all the other Jews A, a side note I should say that in a couple of other locations in the North Caucasus um, the SS encountered groups of mountain Jews and did decide to kill them um, and there's a place called Bogdanovka, which was a Jewish collective farm with many mountain Jews there. Um, there was another place called Menjinka um, in, in the vicinity, not a million miles away from N- Nalchik, where the Germans on a, sort of took a local decision just to go ahead and kill, if in doubt kill, and, and did, and massacred the mountain Jews in the same way that they had. But, but the bigger community in Nalchik um, was spared. Again, this is sort of, you know, evolving history and exactly what happened to the mountain Jews in different locations, especially outside of Nalchik is is really very, very little information about. And, you know, we're trying to learn more. We we know virtually nothing about it. In my research about the Karachai region, I sort of found that there were traces of mountain Jews there that kind of weren't, at least... They knew they were there, but it had it was it hadn't come through in any way in the historiography um that I had come across. So it was interesting to find that there were groups of Jews there, mountain Jews in other regions, um that you know, that the, being there in a the lower key way that were also targeted and killed. So gosh, I've got sidetracked about what the question was now. Oh, that was no hey. Yeah, no, the, the Jewish community there. So, yeah, they they were spared basically, uh,
0: remarkably. How does your book advance our understanding of genocide? That's
1: hmm. <laughs> a complex one. Well, I mean, I think you know, on the one hand, you could say, you know, anything that advances um, the adds depth and and to the to the, to the knowledge of the Holocaust inherently. Adds understanding to the topic of genocide more broadly. Um, there's a lot more to say on that because in the in the Caucasus, in particular, in the North Caucasus, um, as you know, which is the topic of this book, the the Holocaust isn't necessarily the only genocide that that's being talked about or being thought about. That there are um, other incidents of let's say mass violence against civilians that have been called or do get called genocide that that are you know part of the the bigger history of the region. Um, now I would say in in the sort of standard histories the genocide word doesn't get used that much but there are people that do it. Um it's certainly not the perspective that Russian historians of the Caucasus would would use. They don't necessarily want to implicate the Russian Empire in, in genocide. use that word per se. Um, but so at the end of the Caucasus War in 1864, um, the Russians basically, there was a sort of a mass expulsion of the Circassian Sik- people, Circassians um into the ottoman empire and there were massacres and you know large-scale death that happened as part of that process now there are people in the circassian diaspora and one or two western scholars that call that the circassian genocide so you know to to when you when you bring up the the topic of genocide that comes up um there's a whole context of the the deportations these soviet 1943-1944 deportations um, of entire ethnic groups into central asia just by saying that we're getting very close to the united nations definition of genocide even though you know this happened right before 1948 when the genocide convention was approved but even in um, Soviet law, at the very end of perestroika, there was a very important law that was um, uh, promulgated, I guess, um, called on the rehabilitation of repressed peoples. And that was a law that specifically um, referred to those, you know, deportations as genocide conducted by the same Soviet state. This is in Soviet law, referring to earlier Soviet actions as genocide, and set up a standard for not only territorial restitution of the groups in question, because that's been an issue since they returned, um, but also uh, individual sort of legal and even financial compensation. Um, And this law has never really been enacted in any meaningful way. There's been some sort of public acknowledgement and sort of memorialization of genocide locally, but not really any more than that. And that's kind of a, you know, in some ways a a festering wound that hangs over the the North Caucasus in terms of um, their relationship with Russia and obviously historically with the Soviet Union. Um, That's there. So you have these other things that are genocides or, you know, arguably genocides or get called genocides. And, you know, when you talk about the North Caucasus and genocide, those are the things that resonate first, not necessarily the Holocaust. So, you know, here we are inserting the Holocaust into that kind of continuum of mass violence um, in a way that's not usually locally understood. There's, you know, it brings up interesting issues and problems. So, we're kind of pu- putting the Holocaust into that context as well, um, that where it hasn't been. So, I think there's, there's something there in terms of advancing our understanding of
0: genocide. What unanswered questions still elude us regarding the Holocaust in the North Caucasus? What blind spots would you like to see Holocaust research address in the years ahead? What lacunae would you like to see Holocaust research fill in the years ahead? Uh,
1: well, as I said, you know, there's, there's still a lot we don't know. Uh, and I think, you know, we mentioned this in the book. So when we're talking about just the victim numbers alone, how many people were killed there? That is, that number is varies wildly from you know something like a like in our book alone the the different authors have different esper, estimates on that and again so so Stephen tyers in his chapter and he's he's relying really on the german sources he estimates around thirty thousand people were killed and then kirill kirill fefferman he he had you know who's used uh especially more of the soviet sources i think um, he's estimating thirty-five to forty-five thousand, um, and you know he's also sort of using Soviet sources and sort of the German sources in his thinking. And then Irina Rebrova, who's citing you know Russian historians, particularly uh, I guess um, Ilya Altman, his figures range between I think fifty-eight and eighty-four thousand. So even his lower number is substantially higher than the other. And, you know, in if that's the case, if between, you know, let's say 60 to 85,000 or so Jews were killed in the North Caucasus, that would make the North Caucasus the site of around half of all the Jews killed in Russia and the Russian part of the Soviet Union. Right. So that's a big difference between, you know, 30,000 on the low end and uh, you know, eighty-four thousand on the high end. And I think the only way where you get to a, a sort of a, a better idea of that is through lots of micro research into the specific areas, and then you know those individual totals can be totaled up. I know that just in the area I worked on, the fairly small area I worked on alone, the Karachai region, you know, there, there was variance there. There were some things, you know, you felt you could definitely say about the, the massacres that happened and the documentation was more thorough. And then there were others where you had, you know, basically only one source and th- that one source was limited in the information it had. Um, and, it you know, you couldn't be as sure about it. Um, so... You know, you need to go through that process of really looking into the local situation multiple times in the different areas, understanding the local dynamics, local pressures, and understanding just just for the just for the basic uh, question of the numbers alone. Um, but I think also that same you know continuing the kind of microhistorical approach will yield a lot of other things too, a better integration into you know North Caucasian history, into Soviet history of the time. Of the Holocaust, um, and there's a there's a lot more there to be done. So I'd hope, you know, that in the very in a more tangible way, could continue to happen. Um, the challenge, of course, now is uh, with the war in Ukraine. Um, access for historians to local archives in in the North Caucasus, for example, and, and possibly even centrally, is is going to be more ch- even more challenging
0: than it was before. Can you tell us about SS Oberfuhrer Otto Ohlendorf? Who was mm. he?
1: Ohlendorf, yeah. Um so he was he was based okay. So the head he was the head of the main killing unit um that went through both Crimea in 1941 and later came into the North Caucasus. So the the killing units of the SS were the known as the uh, Einsatzgruppen. So kind of I guess you might translate them as uh, deployment groups. And there were four main ones: A, B, C, and D. And you know, A went up to the north northern part of Russia. Uh, D, which is the one here, went through Crimea. So you know, southern Ukraine, Crimea into the North Caucasus in 1942. Otto Ollendorf was the head um, of uh, Einsatzgruppe D or deployment group D um, in 1941, up until, when was it? Sometime uh, April, uh, well, sometime in 42 before, actually he was not in the North Caucasus. So he, he was the head of this group before it got to the North Caucasus. Um, and by his own account, uh, Einsatzgruppe Day under his supervision killed, I think here's the number, 91,678 people from July 41 to April 42. So under his watch, as the head of this Einsatzgruppe, um, you know, 91 and a half thousand or more uh, people, mostly Jews, uh, were shot to death um so he was um, you know captured at the end of the war uh sentenced at, um, at the nuremberg military tribunal um, and hanged in 1951. Um, so he's he's kind of the person that's in charge of the main killing unit of the SS but before, before it got to the North Caucasus the the other person, um, who takes over and is in charge of the same unit when it gets to the North Caucasus is, is uh, Walter Bierkamp.
0: So yes, can you can you tell us about Walter Bierkamp in yeah, this context?
1: Yeah, he's you know has the same title SS Oberführer, um, and he replaced uh, Ohlendorf in June 1942. And it was the end of July 1942 that the Germans broke through into the North Caucasus and in, and invaded in the next sort of month month and a half, um, and over the next yeah five and a half months or so, um, it was under Bear Camp that the the Einsatzgruppe D, this SS killing units. Um, killed Jews in the North Caucasus and then the numbers would be what I said um, you know the lower estimates based on German sources uh, 30,000 people the highest number based on Soviet sources would be 84,000 but in either case you know a huge number of of people were mostly shot and in some cases gassed to death Um, I believe uh, Beer, Beer Camp committed suicide at the very end of the war. So he was not
0: not brought to justice. How did you meet Carol Fifferman? Can you tell us about your relationship with him?
1: Yeah, yeah I mentioned it earlier, right? So we met at this um, conference in Paris in 2007 and just got to know him because he was such a good guy, kind of friendly with him. And then just, you know, later on when I started thinking about North Caucasus and possibly doing work on it and come kind of coming up with this idea for a special issue of a journal or a book, you know, getting in touch with them. Um, and yeah, we sort of developed that idea really kind of remotely over email. And then um, he was on a fellowship at USC a few years ago. So I got to see him then and I, I bumped into him maybe once in, in London when he was at some conference there when I was there. Um, but yeah, just like that. Like, like most of this actual whole project was done remotely, like over email, basically. Um, yeah, so I haven't I haven't actually met some of the contributors to the book. So I've met most of them, but I think four of them I've never met in person. Only only over email. So it's kind of how a, how a big project like this could could evolve.
0: How does this book differ and build upon? Differ from and build upon Kirill Fefferman's previous book on the Holocaust in the Crimea, in the Crimea and the North Caucasus.
1: Yeah, so, so uh, in a couple of ways. Um, so the the sort of the the precursors to this book um, were, uh, I guess, in in two thousand and three. Uh, Okay, I should t- take a step back. We were lucky enough to gather together in this book as contributing authors, probably most of the main people that have uh, that have worked on the Holocaust in the North Caucasus, as well as one or two people that hadn't worked on it and did work on it for us. So um, Andre Angrich, the German historian, he had done in 2003 a book in German on... Einsatzgruppe Day, so this the this main killing unit. And so based on German sources, he tracked you know, what it did, the you know, the killings that it had done in Crimea, and then the North Caucasus. Um, and then Kirill's book, um, when was it published? 2016, 2017? I think it came out of his dissertation. It's you know, in the same way as Angrich's book had done focused on, you know, both Crimea and mm-hmm. um, the North Caucasus because it was the same kind of direction of German advance and the same unit doing the killings. So there's that logic to kind of bring those two together. And what Kirill's book did was, whereas Anger could really relied on the German documentation, the sort of, I guess, the perpetrator sources, um... Kirill brought in the main Soviet sources. This is the extraordinary, the Soviet Extraordinary Commission. Um, He brought in those sources to the table and then so to kind of have greater, sort of a a much sort of more involved picture, overview of um, the killings, but also had begun to bring in um, issues to do with uh, local issues. So, in terms of local collaboration with the Germans, um, and also the kind of uh, experiences of uh, of the refugees, of the evacuees, the Jewish, and their decision making and that kind of thing. So, it's bringing in extra kind of levels to it. But once again, on a, a kind of overview of both Crimea and the North Caucasus. Now, what we wanted to do in this book was was something different we wanted first of all just to focus on the North Caucasus itself so this particular you know area region whatever you want to call it um, has a very distinct you know history there's multiple multiple histories cultures contexts traditions uh, religions languages etc cetera, etc cetera, but that are uh, definitely that have some kind of you know, group together kind of coherence, but are really, really different from um, the Crimea. So, you know, historically, for example, uh, the Crimea, the, the occupation of the Crimea lasted much longer, maybe, let's say, you know, close to three years, whereas the North Caucasus, is, you know, it's five months. Um, but then the local contexts are really, really different. So, And also because both Angerick and uh, Kirill Pfefferman had had done more of a kind of overview, we not only wanted to have the focus just on this on the North Caucasus, but also to go to do micro studies. You know, to some extent, they had done the work of the broader picture, and we kind of referred to that in our introduction to set the scene. But we wanted to start to go into real, you know, in depth studies of the specifics. that were relevant for the North Caucasus alone. So that was the kind of, you know, sort of increased focus, more depth, and then, you know, hopefully this kind of integration of
0: local contexts with the Holocaust context. Who is Alisa Prizova? Why is she notable?
1: Alisa Prizova um, is, or, or was, should I say, the the half sister of a of a wonderful man who I had the honor of interviewing for the Shoah Foundation Yuri Prizov I also inter- interviewed his sister who's also wonderful uh, Nellie Finkelstein, um, so she was they are Mountain Jews they come originally from the North Caucasus, um and, uh she she was the half sister she was one of um, and I, I don't think the only survivor, but one of the survivors of the, this massacre, you know how I mentioned earlier that the Germans saved the community, or didn't save, but spared the mountain Jews in, the, in Nalchik, but they mm-hmm. did uh, massacres in one or two other locations. Well, in one of the other locations, Bogdanovka, Elisa Prizova was one of the only survivors of that mass shooting. She was able to, I think, get dressed up in some different clothing and claim that she was she was um, a Kabardian, not Jewish, and that she was there by mistake and she got out, um, wasn't shot, and she was the only person to testify in a trial in 1964 against one of the local perpetrators of that of that massacre. So a local policeman who done who who was a shooter along with the Germans. Um, and, you know, she ended up emigrating to the U.S. with with the other prizovs. Um, but sadly, she died in, in
0: 2014. Um,
2: yeah.
0: How did you meet the authors that contributed to this book? What kind of relationships did you form with them?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, as I mentioned earlier... I didn't meet all of them and still haven't to this day. Um, so, some of them I have met. Um, you know, I met Kirill at this conference and then subsequently. Let's go through those. Uh, Georgi Derlugian, I met, and he was out in Los Angeles and, you know, met him. Great guy. Andre Angrich, I've never met. I've been in email touch with him. Stephen Tyus, I never met, touch over email, and I've, I've chatted to him on the phone as well. Andrea Mansky, I've met at a, at a workshop at the US Holocaust Memorial Museum when I was. I, I gave an early version of my chapter as a paper there and met him and got to know him a little bit. Um, yes. uh, Sufyan Nizhimukov, I've never met, an email. And William Newmans, I've sadly never met either. Irina Rebrova, I've met. She was um, at a fellowship at the. University of Southern California's Center for Advanced Genocide Research. So I got uh, I met her there, and then encouraged her to do a chapter for the book um, after after meeting her. And um, who else? Christina Winkler. I've never met either. Um, just emailed her in, in contact. The way it kind of happened was so Kirill and I had this idea for. Um, you know, pulling together all these different authors that had worked on the North Caucasus into a single volume. And then he sort of found people he knew of, and then I found the, the people I, w- I knew of, and then kind of, you know, we brought them together. So the, the, some people are like Kirill's people, and some people are like my people, quote-unquote. Um, and that's, that's sort of how, how we worked through it. But, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was largely done, you know, over email and over, you know, sort of remotely effectively um, and was, you know, finished off during the pandemic, the very last stages of the book. So that was, that was kind of that. Um, But hopefully I'll have the chance to, you know, meet everyone in person at some point at conferences or somewhere.
0: It'd be great. What was the Extraordinary Commission? Can you elaborate upon it?
1: yeah the extraordinary commission um known as um chigekai and its kind of russian acronym um the extraordinary state commission um was uh something that was set up I mean, if you think of, you know, things you have like truth and reconciliation commissions, like in South Africa and, you know, in other places, commissions that get set up to document um, crimes and that kind of thing and, and provide some kind of, you know, restitution and justice. This was kind of. A Soviet version of what that was, but it was more than that. Um, so, so it was set up. I think pretty early on, when it became clear that the Germans were, you know, doing these massacres of Soviet civilians, but also were kind of looting um, and you know trashing places in the process. So it was a, basically a commission to document you know, Nazi crimes, with the idea that at the end of the war, they would effectively present a bill uh, to the Germans saying, hey, here, you did, you know, all these things in all these different places. Um, So it it did not only document human victims, but also documented kind of economic damage that was done. Um, And that was, you know, there was hoped to be, you know, sort of economic financial restitution at the end of the war. Um, But it's become the main source, um, it's the main Soviet source, unquestionably, and and really the main source in general for the details of what massacres happened, where and who did them, uh, community by community, community by community. So it went into every single place where the Germans' um, occupation was and documented what happened in terms of the you know, damage to the economy, and, um, but also especially the sort of massacres um, and who did them, both the Germans and the local collaborators. Now, what's interesting about it is it, it certainly had in part a kind of a
2: propaganda
1: goal um and you know this has been there's a particular author whose name just at the moment escapes me who's written on sort of the the propaganda goals of the commission they hired sort of a lot of or involved a lot of you kind know, of quite notable soviet figures um in you know to be in to to write and to be part of the commission what was of particular interest for me as a a former you know, a uh, Russian literature person who, who worked on the Russian avant garde is that uh, one of the reports um, about um, uh, massacres that happened in the North Caucasian uh, city of Kislovodsk, right next to the Karachaya region, incidentally. Um, was written by uh, a man called Viktor Shklovsky and i had in my kind of previous incarnation as a russian literature person you know any, anyone from the russian literature background would probably know of roman uh, of viktor uh, shklovsky as a, a critic a literary critic of uh, who founded uh, formalism as a school uh, influential school of literary criticism and was on on you know go right before world war 1 a kind of uh, practitioner of avant-garde literary practice and criticism who would um, go on, who did go on tour with the uh, Russian futurist poets that I wrote about in the south of Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, a generation before Shklovsky was there doing kind of outrageous avant-garde literary poetry performances and discussions in, in, you know, Crimea and in, in uh, sort of North Caucasus kind of region. And then, you know, uh, you know, 25 years later or so um, was in the North Caucasus documenting the massacre of Jews. So that was an interesting sort of just thing that I noted, given my, you know, the connections of, you know, the, the Russian literature work I'd done before and the Holocaust work I'd done. But anyways, there's a big commission to document uh, Nazi crimes. Um, The main source um, of it for studying the Holocaust in the former Soviet Union, but a source that's not, like, like any historical source, not without its issues and its controversies. So very, very important, often quite reliable, but with some things that are dubious in it, that are quite dodgy, Um, including in the North Caucasus. There's a couple of massacres that were actually subsequently found out to have been carried out by the Soviets, by the NKVD during World War II, that were blamed on the Germans and pushed, uh, that narrative was pushed through the Commission, the Extraordinary State Commission, There's a couple of reports, one for a place in Chechnya and another for a place um, in Kabardina-Balkaria, Balkaria, the region under German occupation, where the Soviets massacred some local civilians um, basically because they thought they were doing pro-German work and they just shot up a couple of entire communities, but then blamed those massacres on the Nazis. So again, you, know, you always have to, have, as with, as with you know, any historical source, have some sort of critical look at the sources, even the ones you trust and, and want to trust.
0: You actually preempted a question that I intended to ask you. Mm. Most of the essays in this volume focus on Nazi atrocities during the Holocaust. Mm. How much is known of Soviet atrocities in this region, in the North Caucasus, before and during World War II? Is anything known of the experiences of Muslims, Christians, and Jews in the Caucasus conscripted into the Soviet Red Army? What kinds of cruelties did the Soviets and Bolsheviks commit during World War I, during the Russian Civil War, and during the interwar years?
1: Oh my gosh, that's like five
0: questions
1: right there. Um, basically, yeah, you know, in terms of just the Soviet era alone, um, and issues of, you know, mass violence. Yes, yeah, so this, this, there are works on that, right? So, this gets into, you know, the Soviet history of the region, and to, you know, the the North Caucasian historians, you know, their histories of the region um, are primarily about that. I would say there's been quite a lot of work since the end of the Soviet Union about these mass deportations in 1943,
2: 1944,
1: and the extent to which they should be considered a genocide. There's quite a lot of work on them. There's less work, uh, less scholarship on um, the Russian Civil War, the sort of imposition of Soviet power and the Soviet campaigns of the, the 1920s and 1930s, which often used quite, involved quite a lot of violence. So there's a bit on that, but not an awful lot. Um, and, you know, when I was interested in that and looking at that, you know, in relation to the book, what I tended to find was, there's some general overviews in, you know, a little, little bit, sort of on a very general level in in the Western histories, um, you know, produced by scholars in the West. Um, There's some, you know, fairly general accounts in the, you know, Russian historians. And then there's some quite detailed work being done at a local level by historians in the North Caucasus from the local universities. And there were, you know, mixed kind of, you know, it's not all great work, but it does have the value of bringing to, at the very least, of bringing to light um, local archival sources. So there's quite a lot in, certainly in the security archives, the archives, you know, local archives of of, of materials of the NKVD, for example, about what they did and who they arrested in the 1920s and 1930s. So there's quite a lot there to be done. But, you know, I, I suspect there's really a lot of local work um, on stuff in the 20s and 30s that could come out that would be really, really interesting to really document. You know, for example, there was a lot of resistance to the Soviets' attempts to try and impose um, collectivized agriculture. So, you know, take out, privatized, you know, agriculture, traditional forms of agriculture and replace it with the Soviet collective version where the state benefits from it, uh, particularly in the Karachai and the, che- the Chechen regions, there were mass uprisings against that. Um, so, and, and it, it's quite possible, if not likely, that the, these mass uprisings uh you know, put into the Soviet mentality, the idea that the Chechen region, uh, Chechnya and the Karachai region were inherently anti-Soviet and uh, not loyal. And this was a fundamental reason why these people were deported in 43 and 44, um, because any sort of collaboration during the war would just build upon that sense that they already had. Um, even if the wartime collaboration was not, you know, certainly in, in, in my analysis, was not um, particularly ex- as extensive as they claimed it was. So, you know, there, there's quite a lot that's been, there's a certain amount that's been done, but there's certainly a lot more work to, to do there. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, deeper histories of uh, the Russian colonization of the region and the violence that's involved there. Um, but there's some. I would say that there's there's a lot more material on on the North Caucasus and the deportations, uh, for example, than there ever has been on the North Caucasus and the Holocaust. Hence hence
0: there being room for a, a book such as ours. Can you tell us about the history and sociology of the Karachai Autonomous Oblast?
1: Yeah, so the Karachais are, are one of the indigenous sort of uh peoples of the of the North Caucasus. And you know, certainly indigenous in relation to the Russian conquest of the North Caucasus. Exactly, you know, who the Karachais were and how long they've been where they are is is not entirely clear. There are different theories about you know their origins. But you know, they've certainly been there for several hundred years in a very mountainous region. The mountainous part of the North Caucasus, they're deeper into the hills than than other groups, and near, near the the largest mountain, Mount Elbrus, which is the not not well known, you know, but is the largest, uh, the tallest mountain in Europe. Um, so they're very sort of the the Karachay regions next to that. But, um, now, the karachay has been there for hundreds of years, but. Um, you know, they didn't necessarily. The, the whole sort of documentation of the North Caucasus, you know, that we know of comes from the time when the Russians get there. And the Russians get there in the 1820s um, and negotiate with the Karachais um, so that, that they uh, don't resist them as much as the other uh, Caucasian tribes would for the next few years. And, you know, they did resist, didn't resist they were under pressure of of violence not to not to do as much as they could. Um, But anyway, they what happens in the in the Russian sort of colonial period, the Russian imperial period, should I say, up into the Civil War of 1917, Karachais are there, um, have some reasonable relations with the Tsarist authorities, the Soviets come in um and in 1917, and there's quite a lot of you know, I, you can't say that Karachai's with one voice were anti-Soviet, but they weren't they certainly weren't pro-Soviet. Um there's a particular Karachai communist who helps negotiate the Soviets' kind of entry into the Karachai region, and it's kind of Bolshevization in you know in 1920 21. Um, so it's it's a region that the Soviets then got, the Karachay Autonomous Oblast is something that the Soviets decide should exist with certain territorial borders. So it's part of the Soviets' early efforts when they took over the North Caucasus to appear to be different to initially appear to be different to the Russian Tsarist authorities, which were, you know, they, they viewed as being imperialist and pro-Russian and anti these kind of ethnic minorities or they're actually majorities in the North Caucasus, but the anti-non-Russian. Uh, so they, they, they form these, you know, in, this, in the North Caucasus when they've taken over the Soviets say, okay, we're gonna name this territory after the main group here and this territory after you know these two groups here. So you have the Republic of Chechena Ingushetia for the Chechens and the Ingush. They're together, and that's over here. So look, we represented you and gave you your territory here. Aren't we great? Same in kabardino balkaria over here. This is the, the area of the, the Kabardians and the, the Balkars. Isn't that great that we've done that for you? And then over in the Karachai region, they they have a couple of different approaches, but they um, say there's a region for the Karachais here. And they sort of carve it out and it's named after the Karachais. And, um, and that's basically from the mid to late 1920s up until World War II, this region exists. But in actual fact, in all these groups, they're not as you know monoethnic or bi-ethnic as the names of these republics or these obelisks is just the name of a administrative division, like a, a province, you could say. Um, so these provinces get named after a single ethnic group or two ethnic groups. But in fact, they're, they're multi-ethnic. The Caucasus is, is, is very, very multi-ethnic with, you know, you maybe have a dominant group here, but there'll be multiple other groups. Um, the Karachai in, in region in particular, the way the Soviets carved it out on the map Was uh, the largest minority were the Karachais, but they were not the majority. And then the second largest minority were were Russians, Um, who were mainly Cossacks, basically. So, um, and you know, fairly close in number to them, not quite parity, but um, you know, they were the second largest uh, ethnic minority in, in the region. So you you have that dynamic there that it's named after one group but actually there are large other minorities in that group um, that don't get that kind of name recognition on the territory so that was that um, basically when the Karachais get deported in forty three by the Soviets they, the Soviets then um, rename this whole, they, they basically t- you redistrict rename the whole thing Removing the uh from, from you know, not only from the name of that territory, but all references to them in any official um, uh, capacity at all. Even even encyclopedias produced in the 40s and 50s, the, there's no entry for the Karachais. They're, they're just taken out of the record for a few years until until Stalin dies and and afterwards they're allowed back. Um, So when the Karachais return, uh, Khrushchev um, allows the Karachais and the Chechens and other groups to return from exile. Um, They reconstitute the Karachai Autonomous Oblast, but this time they recreate it as the Karachai Cherkess Autonomous Oblast. So they have, instead of having their own named uh, area, They have, it's named uh, to be shared with uh, the Circassians, a different ethnic group um, to some extent, even you could say it's uh, in some ways a rival ethnic group. Um, So this is also become, and that that kind of double thing remains to this day. It's the uh, Karachaeva Circassia, the Republic of Karachaeva Circassia today. So and, and that for it is also kind of a legacy of of also the sort of Soviet punishment. So they get to come back, they're somewhat rehabilitated, but they don't get quite the same thing that they had before. So the sort of sense of territorial restoration um, is not there for the caratch. So anyway,
0: that's something um, about that. What befell the Karachais during the Holocaust? How did they respond to the Nazi-Soviet conflict?
1: I mean, the, the Karachis weren't the victims here, or the intended victims. Um, the Jews were, you know, and the Roma um, were the intended victims, right? So for them, that's why, you know, the Holocaust doesn't really factor uh, in terms of local... Um, local scholarship, you know, Karachai historians writing about the war, write about the deportation primarily, their deportation, their, their genocide, um, as they they definitely refer to it as a genocide today. So the the genocide of the Jews is kind of is kind of external to them in in the way they present it. Um, so the Germans arrive in forty two in in whenever it was, August, September 42, stay for five months and leave in, you know, the 3rd or 4th of January 1943. Uh, well, the Karachai most of the men, the males of military age have been conscripted into the Soviet army. So the people who are in the Karachai region uh, of, of Karachai origin are, you know, women, children, elderly for the most part. Um, According to Soviet documents, there are substantial numbers of draft dodgers hiding in the hills. Um, That's possibly the case. It may be exaggerated in the Soviet documents, but probably true. Um, And among those sort of avoiding the draft um, and hiding out in the mountains um, are people that would go on to collaborate with the Germans. There also, it's important to point out, Karachais in the Soviet kind of um, structures um, who join resistance groups um, to try to resist. Uh, when the army kind of retreats out of there, their resistance groups are formed. But their operations are largely a total failure. And after the, after the occupation, the Soviets blame the failure of this local resistance movement on the Karachais. They say, well, you were collaborating with the Germans. You weren't reliable. You, you know, betrayed yourselves. You turned and betrayed us. That's not, uh, that's been challenged um, by local historians. Um, and yeah, there's certainly doubts about that, um, but there was collaboration. And some of the people that were hiding out, the Germans also, when they arrived, um, had both got with them um, emigres who'd fled uh, the region of the North Caucasus in general during the Civil War. So in around 1920, 21, they'd left um, the region And had become emigres in in Europe in the interwar period, and then had kind of some of them had sort of been drawn into the German orbit approaching World War II. Some of them came back in with the Germans, and then there were people who the German had had captured Soviet prisoners of war, who the Germans had captured and then turned in prisoner of war camps. and who would be who were used in sort of as collaborators when the Germans came into these places. So some locals came back. Um, either they they'd been local and left, you know, 25 years before or so, or whatever the math is. I guess 20 years before. Um, or you know, they'd left like a year before, had been captured and then came back as, as prisoners of wars who'd become collaborators. So they, that all happened throughout the North Caucasus and with all the different ethnic groups, that process happened, uh, including in the Karachai region. So you have, some, and so you have a local, um, kind of a puppet local government that the German military allows in all the regions. So the Germans rely on local help for a lot of things. Um, And one is just kind of the German military wants an easy occupation. They're very concerned because they know what happened during the civil war. That is, if you lose the local population, uh, then you're likely going to lose the war. You're going to lose your hold on the grip on the particular region. So the German military is trying to do everything it can to keep the locals happy and appear to be as local friendly as possible. Um, and so they allow uh, these local kind of puppet, kind of puppet local governments, I guess you'd call them. Um, and uh, you know, you have a mixture of people coming out of the woodwork to, to uh, run these. And then, you know, this becomes the pretext for the Soviets to deport the Karachais in this case, even though these local puppet administrations were also existed in almost every region, um, both in places where the Soviets deported the whole ethnic group from after the war because they were supposedly collaborated and in regions where they didn't. So, yeah, that's that's the background to that. So, yeah, and then this local administration... Um it's unclear. Again, I mean, I tried to really really make a point in my chapter in the book that uh to get away from the idea of the Karachais did this or the Karachai's reacted in this way to the Holocaust or did this during the Holocaust or whatever, during the occupation, or whatever. It's really not that kind of totalizing way of thinking is how you know, it becomes much easier to say, oh, the Karachai's collaborated, therefore they had to be deported by the Soviets after the war, right? In actual fact, when you look at it more closely, it breaks down a great deal more than that. Some Karachai's collaborated, some were loyal to the Soviets, some kind of you know had in-between things happen. Um, just as you'd actually expect human beings to react, it wasn't in one monolithic way. Uh, but anyway, this collaborationist public government is in charge, and they are, they are not necessarily the ones that kill Jews exactly, although there's, it's possible that one or two of its members certainly were present at some of the executions of Jews. Um, but they're related. There's a local police force that the Germans um, uh, create, and encourage local participation in they are involved in the massacres of Jews, if not in the shooting, but in the herding together of people and guarding them and that kind of thing. Um, So there is some local involvement in the Holocaust, but again, you know, my numbers that I was able to kind of estimate is there was maybe 30 or so people, local people involved in it, you know, in the most of the in the massacres of Jews. And not all of them were Karachides, maybe half you know, a bit over half were. So, you know, tiny numbers of people actually involved in the Holocaust per se. Uh, and then in the numbers involved more broadly in in collaboration in various ways in the administrative you know, under the Germans in the administration, whether it's the police or the this government or the other sort of roles that the Germans said um actually let me just look up i had some numbers for it um again it's it's not the numbers aren't you know they aren't enormous yeah the entire collaborationist apparatus established during the german occupation can be estimated at between 900 and 1200 people um so, it's a pretty small fraction of uh, the total population. So, just, just to kind of, the numbers, you know, while imprecise, at least give a sense of, um, you know, a sense of proportion and a sense of, you know, perspective um, about, about collaboration. I'm just wanting to look up a second um, the numbers from the census. So in terms of how many Karachais there were, I've got these numbers here, and hold on, one second. There are, or were, yeah. So there's about, about 71,000 Karachais in um, the Karachai Autonomous Oblast going into World War II in 1939. Um, and I'm saying that the number... The Karachai's involved in collaboration is probably 500 to 650 mm. so it's a, you know it's a pretty tiny fraction of the whole population it's not the whole population you cannot say that it's a pretty tiny fraction of it and that was the pretext for the Soviets deporting the Karachai's in, in yeah. doing that you know the thing that the Karachai's call genocide, and, and yeah, you know, may actually could
0: could be considered, depending on how you read the UN convention. Who was Salim Shadov? Why is he notable?
1: Salim Shadov was a, a lawyer,
0: and
1: um, according to Soviet sources, a former prince. Um, in he, I think he was from Nalchik in in the region of Kabardino Balkaria. He was he was the person of. He was one of a couple of people appointed to lead the local national committee, this local kind of puppet local government that the Germans set up, the German military set up when they occupied nalchik and the surrounding area in October um, 1942. So he was he was the kind of in charge of the local government, the local collaborator in charge of the local government for two and a half months of German occupation in the nalchik Area, Um, And he's significant because he was one of a number of people who have said they were involved in in helping in in in, in saving the mountain Jews, basically. He knew many of the mountain Jews, um, and he was able to help intercede with the Germans on their behalf. And help their change their decision to um, away from executing them at least temporarily. Help that decision, you know, so that help them be spared. Um, and yeah, he and he he when the Germans retreated, he retreated with them um, and died after the war. There's there's certainly more that could be known about him. Um, I only have a sort of a an outline of, of his history, but he's, he's, a, he's a really interesting figure. I think there's a, another thing that's sort of come, that's come forward that, that's unusual in the North Caucasus. Outside of the Cossack regions of the North Caucasus, there's not an awful lot of uh, anti-Semitism, among the population. There's not a sort of a particular tradition of anti-Semitism or, you know, majorly anti-Semitic feelings um, at that time among, especially in the in the highlands, in the Muslim majority um, areas. So the the most of the the local indigenous groups in the North Caucasus are Muslim. Um, they generally got on pretty well with the mountain Jews. Um, And there's not a great indication that they hated Jews um, or associated them with the Bolsheviks um, like the Nazi propaganda tried to do. Um, So that came through in multiple ways. So, you know, this might, this, you know, is, is to some extent held as an embodiment of that. Here's a, you know, at least secular Muslim helping rescue Jews from execution um, in a very meaningful way, but somebody who's also a collaborator, somebody who also felt that they stood to gain from the Germans being there, um, and this dynamic is all through the North Caucasus. There, the people there were people that stood to gain from from the German occupation. But they weren't necessarily themselves rabid anti-Semites in the way that you often see in places further west in Cossack regions or in um, Ukraine and other places in the Baltics. So, you know, this kind of strange dynamic or or at least unfamiliar dynamic
0: is very much present there in the North Caucasus. Who is Kadi Bayramukov? Can you say more about him?
1: Yeah, he, he's the equivalent of um, Salim Shadov, but in the Karachai region. So he's the head of the puppet local government in the Karachai region. Uh, another really interesting character. We don't know a massive amount about him. And most of what we know comes from Soviet security sources from the NKVD. So he was somebody, his parents, or at least his dad and his brothers were killed by the Bolsheviks during the Civil War. So he's somebody who's obviously not inclined to regard uh, Soviet power fondly. Uh, he was involved um, in an organizing kind of way in the 1930 anti-collectivization uprising in uh, you know, quite a big one, a fairly major, you know they got together quite a lot of people got rid of the soviets for a, for a few weeks in the karachay region or some regions of the karachay um, autonomous oblast and he was one of the at least the, the NKVD sources call him a regional commander of that he's then you know punished for that um is released from punishment in about 1940 kind of isn't doing much um the Soviet sources claim he's kind of hiding out, and so do the, the sort of the Nazi collaborationist wartime sources claiming he hid like a hunted wolf. Uh, they have all this dramatic language about it. Uh, some of the local, one local historian in particular, has done a bit more work on that and kind of discovered he was kind of living on the fringes, trying to kind of reintegrate himself into society, but then somebody who was his, was his protector kind of. Got purged by the Soviets and kind of so he was kind of out of the picture again. Anyway, when the Germans arrive, he sort of puts himself forward as a kind of a local leader. So he's had some experience of leading, he's definitely got anti Soviet credentials, and the German military seems to like him and trust him and puts him in, you know, gets allows him to be in charge of this national committee, this local kind of puppet government thing. uh, you know, what he does is, is not 100% clear. The report I told you about, written by Viktor Shlovsky, the uh, incredible uh, literary, formalist critic of, of Russian literary criticism, um, he mentions that Bayramukov was at a mass, a mass execution of Jews in Kislavatsk. Um, So he was there at least certainly as a witness. Um, And this committee that he was in charge of was in power when all the major or the almost all of the executions happened in the uh, Karachai region. So Bairamukov would have been aware of that and certainly didn't intercede against it. Some members of the same committee were more actively involved than he and certainly were at the executions and were part of the local police that... That uh, helped carry them out, um, but we don't, you know, the the precise details are not really clear. The Soviets definitely thought he was a war criminal and wanted him, you know, tried and, and repatriated. But he was able to retreat with the with the Germans in January
2: 1943.
1: Um, tried to was involved in the North Caucasus. Uh, national committee you know which helped organize refugees leaving the Caucasus under the germans tried to be involved with attempts to parachute people back into the karachai to foment insurrection all these kind of things he ends up at the end of the war after the germans uh, surrender he basically uh, avoids repatriation goes into hiding uh, pretends he's turkish um, lives in moves to turkey for a few years and then I think in the 1950s uh, emigrates to the US um, and lived in Paterson, New Jersey, where there's a Karachai community until his death in 1976. Um, so there's an interesting history there in Paterson, New Jersey. The Karachai community there, uh, especially, come from Karachais who left uh, the Karachai region um, when they retreated uh, when the Germans retreated. So it's, it's that era of diaspora, not not only probably, but but primarily. So you know, the, there's histories there that kind of live on in, in some way in the U.S.
0: Who was Georgian emigre Michael Achmeteli? Why is he notable?
1: Yeah. Well, he's you know, I don't, I'm not necessarily the the expert on him. He was um, somebody. So complicated. Uh, When the Russian Civil War happened, um, Georgia, along with Armenia and Azerbaijan, set up independent republics for a couple of years between sort of 17 and 21, before they were crushed by the Soviets. He was somebody who was in the Georgian government of that independent republic. Um, And then when the Soviets closed in, he fled and was an emigre. In interwar Europe, in emigre circles, um, you know, involved in sort of anti-Soviet kind of journals and that kind of thing, very much an important figure. Like many of the others in in the North Caucasian and South Caucasian diaspora, um, they went from being kind of associated with. Um, the the British and French intelligence services and even the Polish intelligence services to gradually sort of moving towards Germany as it became clear Germany was the only power capable of or likely to take on the Soviets and actually have a chance of defeating them you know, so as you know the late 1930s progressed so he was somebody that came into the Germans orbit. He was the first director of the Vance Institute, who I mentioned before, this in this think tank, this German think tank in Berlin about the Soviet Union. He was the first director, but I believe he left in 1940. He was involved in all the sort of emigre uh, circles and all the sort of Nazis work with the emigres in terms of the Georgian. He was Georgian by um, nationality. Uh, he was involved in the Georgian National Committee and everything they did. Um, it, you know, uh, in, in, te- in an in, in intelligence capacity, I believe, in, in relation to German military intelligence, the Abwehr. After the war, he retains his connections to sort of former connections with German military intelligence and then, that then gets funded by the U.S., um so you know the, i don't have a sort of full knowledge of this but he is somebody that's being used by german intelligence and uh funded by the u.s and the cia and the uscic Hunter Intelligence corps and, and people like that and has his own history there um and, you know if you know about the the galen group and and you know people and von mende and people associated with them there's a whole world of that, that I'm not the best person to talk about, but, you know, interesting figure. Now, I guess um, he comes up in relation to the North Caucasus, probably in connection with the Vance Institute, I guess, although the Vance Institute, which informed the US about where Jews were during the war and ruled that the mountain Jews were in fact Jews and had no place in the German empire, I should be exterminated. Um, that decision was not while he was director. Um, but, you know, that's something about him. Um, yeah, and, and I'm pretty sure, um, Jeff Birds, who works at Northeastern University and, you know, is one of the experts on, uh, sort of Soviet intelligence and its networks, I think he's written about him, um, and, you know, no doubt there are others, too, who have done that kind of
0: work. There are some Nazi officials you describe in your mm. book. One of them is Theodor Oberlander. One of them oh, is gosh. Otto van Brotigam. Mm. One of them is Herbert Weber.
2: Oh, Another. okay, yeah.
0: What can you tell us about them and the atrocities they were complicit in?
1: Yeah, so earlier on we talked, we mentioned the names of Otto Ollendorf and um, Walter Bierkamp. And these are probably, you know, in terms of killings in the North Caucasus, these are, you know, very high level perpetrators. They did the organizing and, you know, the responsibility for getting the killings organized and done, um, but didn't themselves do the killings. Now, the names you mentioned, so there's uh, Oberländer, von Brautigam, and
0: was the other one i mentioned the following herbert weber otto von brotigam theodore oberlander walter Kerrer. walter
1: Kerrer, i know much less about that's in stephen chap stephen tyers's chapter in the book and encourage you know i don't have that off the top of my head i can't talk about that but there's plenty about him in the book um i'm guessing he was associated with the gas fans and the killer, you know, the gas van killings in in the North Caucasus, probably in the Crimea too. Um, so you know, more of a lower level perpetrator. Herbert Weber um, is definitely a you know relatively comparatively low level perpetrator. He's the central figure in the Karachai region that that I worked on in my chapter, um, and he's somebody f- so. The German documents in Thai, Herbert Weber, um, you know, a former guy who was involved with the Gestapo in Magdeburg in Germany. And then I guess he gets posted to the North Caucasus. And in the North Caucasus, he's head of a subunit of a subunit of uh, the main killing group, group Einsatzgruppe day, So a tile commando of Einsatzkommando 12, so it's a couple of levels down, and his um, his uh, rank is, what was it again? I did write this down, i was going to to forget, but it's, it's a fairly low-level rank. Um, he is, yeah, SS Obersturmfuhrer, kind of like the equivalent of a lieutenant, uh, you know, captain, lieutenant, the next one up. So, you know, He's the leader of this small subunit that goes around doing the killings and the the main shootings in the Karachai region. Um, Now, we only know that he was formerly in Magdeburg and that he was assigned as the head of this unit from German documentation and that he was known as Herbert Weber. The Soviet sources that refer to him call him Otto Weber, So there's a slight discrepancy there, but it's evidently the the same guy. There's one guy who's the head of, who does everything. Um, And, you know, he had this small team, this tile commander was called SD 12, seven people in total, um, you know, included a cook, uh, a couple of local police, and then him, his interpreter and his driver, um, and from what I could tell, at least from the Soviet documents, they said that basically his interpreter and his driver and occasionally him did all the shooting, at all the mass shootings. So, you know, here's a local perpetrator that, you know, literally got their hands dirty, did actual killings, along with his driver and his interpreter. Um, I suspect that some of the locals, the local police that were involved, also lent a hand in um, these massacres, but that there's not enough information to conclude that. The information that we have from the Soviet side comes from interrogations. They all pin the blame on the Germans, right? Perhaps inevitably. Now, whether they did do some shoot, the locals did some shooting themselves, we cannot say 100%. Um, but anyway, Weber was in charge of the, the shootings and evidently did some shootings himself. And you know, totaling up the numbers of the approximately 900 people killed and 900 Jews killed in the Karachai region, you know, he would have been involved in the shooting of around 500 of them, for definite, maybe more. But 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 you know, we we can say with a fair degree of certainty he was he was closely involved in. If not actually shooting the 500 people, and they shot with pistols. That's what the the, the you know the local interrogation things you know say. They would get drunk, and then they would um, trenches would have been drug- dug. The local police would bring out the Jews from wherever they were being kept. They were taken to the edge of the trenches, ordered to undress, and then the interpreter, the driver, and sometimes uh, Otto or Herbert Faber would come out with pistols and shoot people in the back of the head in groups. In the larger executions, it would take them out in groups of 20 and just get through them. And one of the biggest ones, you know, they did that for three and a half hours. And then they'd go back, they'd get drunk more, uh, take all the spoils of the Jews, you know, any, any food or clothing or valuables that they found on the bodies of the stuff that they gathered they take the first pass of that then they leave the rest to the local police to sort through and just you know you get this you know whatever we leave you can have
0: as we bring our dialogue today to a close can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book
1: yeah so i work at the usc Shoah foundation in the last year in particular I've been um in charge of organizing um interviews with Holocaust survivors we have a thing called our last chance collection so named you know fairly obviously because the era of the witness when there are people still alive who who saw the Holocaust with their own eyes is is closing Um, you know I I always say the youngsters who we interview are in their 80s and so we're interviewing people that are you know, usually 85 through to 100 plus. Um, so we're still interviewing people that want to, to you know, be, have their stories recorded. So we're you know, finding people, especially in the US, but to some extent um, trying to work internationally too to record interviews with, especially with survivors, but with other witnesses um, that we haven't interviewed before. So just doing the kind of organizing uh, of that um, and occasionally having the the incredible privilege of being an interviewer myself and and getting to do that. I've been able to interview a small number of uh, people from the Caucasus, Mountain Jews, Yuri Prizov and his sister who I mentioned, and then more recently the the incredible... uh, Local community leader and historian Svetlana Danilova, who emigrated from from Nalchik to to the US, um, you know, twenty or more years ago, and she got to interview her a few months ago. That was wonderful. Um, so just trying to do interviews and um, organize interviews with with Holocaust survivors and other witnesses. Um, that's been a lot of my work in the last,
0: you know, year or so. As we bring our dialogue today to a close. I'd like to convey my heartfelt gratitude to you for our time together. I felt absolutely blessed and amazingly fortunate to have this time with you in dialogue today. I thought this book was incredibly erudite, and I found your words to be eloquent beyond definition. I genuinely appreciate your time with me today and feel absolutely blessed for all that you shared and all that I learned.
1: Thank you, Arias. So kind of you to say so. It's, it's, a, it's an honor privilege to be here. I'm you know, most grateful for you know, giving me the opportunity
0: to talk about the book and the work. And thank you so much. It's
1: been, been
0: wonderful. To our listeners, I am your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with Dr. Crispin Brooks. We have been discussing his newly edited book that he has co-edited with Kirill Pfefferman, Beyond the Pale, The Holocaust in the North Caucasus, published in Rochester by University of Rochester Press 2020. Crispin is the curator of the United... The, of the University of Southern California's Shoah Foundation's Visual History Archive. Thank you very much.